The opinions and views expressed in this video are purely for entertainment purposes and not for investment advice. Good evening, goons. Welcome to an episode of Jack of All Trades. I'm obviously here by myself, uh, though with Sam, our producer, on the other end. Um, I want to apologize for our um, inconsistent schedule lately because me and Caitlin are just, just over our heads busy. She even Sam, too. You got a new job. So we're going to try and uh, make up for it. But... Um, but for now, I just want to kind of do a little rant slash episode on inflation because it's been a huge topic lately. And I've been like pretty vocal about it on my Instagram, but I feel like it's it's something important. So we should put it on a video for you. And um, Sam, are they able to see my screen right now? Yeah, your screen is up now. All right, perfect. Thank you. So I'm going to start with this photo. So this is um, M1 versus uh, M1 velocity versus um, M2 money printing. So for those that don't understand it, really quite simply, M2 is money supply. Um, yeah, M M1 and M2 are basically the same thing, except M2 M2 can, can um, constitutes more than M1. So you're looking at, so M1 is basically like money, all the bills that exist in the world, plus the credit, plus the credit um, from mortgages, um, checks. Um, it's a measure of how liquid and accessible your money is. Um, and then you get into things that are like um, locked in debts, like bonds. Like if you own 10 year bonds, that's considered M2. So it's less liquid than M1. Anyway, it's a measure of how much money supply is in the market. So what we're looking at here, the blue line is velocity, which is a number that, which is a, a measurement that nobody talks about. Well, nobody except for the really sharp economists, right? So the green line is money. That's why I made it green. So clearly in um, you know 2020, the money supply went up by 20. We're almost approaching 30% now. The entire money supply that's in the market, in the US market is increased by 30%. But in the exact same time, velocity cratered right so what does that mean what does velocity measure velocity is the measure is a measurement at which the speed of money exchanges hands right so if i go buy something at the store the store pays their bills whoever is their creditor they buy something with that money that's a that's a cycle right so velocity measures how fast these cycles are what happened well COVID happened right so the exchange of money cratered the problem is it's never recovered it's it's actually started cratering before 2020 it started in 2018 very slowly and it cratered so Think about what this means. It's an inverse relationship, right? If there's more money in the market, but less spending happening, then what the fuck? How, how could there be inflation, right? And inflation is defined by a set amount of money, more amount of money, more money going after the same amount of goods, right? Well, clearly no one's spending their money, right? So how can good prices be, be increasing, right? Well, if you look at some other statistics, uh, okay, so here's one. So this has been my argument so far, right? So M2 money stock, that's the yellow line. S&P 500, those are the uh, top 500 companies in the U.S. stock market. It's been on a steady climb. Look how closely aligned the relationship is between money supply and the growth in the S&P 500. It's like every time uh, the money supply increases or as the money supply increases, the S&P 500 increases in value. It's almost like hand-to-hand -hand this last since, yeah, since COVID, right? So my argument is this. How can there be inflation right now being caused by money when that money was absorbed by the S&P 500, by art, by housing, right? There's an article I pulled up on Forbes right here. Yeah, we have increases of 22% year over year in the U.S. Uh, housing prices, right? In Canada, it's probably something like 30% 30, 30 from, you know, Vancouver and Toronto, the major cities. And so it's like, 
the math is very clear. If the money supply increased by 30% and the S&P 500 increased, well, by 40 or 50% by now, and housing increased by 20%, it, it's almost like that money got absorbed, right? So if the money got absorbed by real assets, which is homes, stocks, art, collectibles, NFTs, what have you, right? How is it possible goods prices are going up? This is where where I take issue with the media and almost anybody that should know better, blaming inflation to the money printing because it's completely dishonest. What is actually happening, and and since I've been very vocal about this, I've had people in the supply chain message me and, and confirm exactly what I said. They're like, the money, the, the the money printing is not the reason that the prices are gone up. It's just literally price gouging. Everything from from raw material suppliers all the way to the transport, to manufacturing, the distributors. All throughout the supply chain, everybody's trying to grab a piece. And it's so easy to justify a higher price right now because you say, well, because inflation, right? Um, I have some stats about that too. Let me pull that up. This is just like the clearest sign. Like money supply goes hand in hand with the stock market. So I don't understand why people, what is this? A producer index, uh, semiconductors. Oh yeah. So there's a chip shortage, right? There's a chip shortage, so that would imply that there's an increase in the prices of chips because there's not enough supply. Well, why is it that the, the price for chips right now is the same price it was at the beginning of the pandemic? And in fact, it dropped, it cratered. So even though there's a shortage of chips, why is it that the producer's prices are just recovering now? How can Why are people paying a premium for chips, for video cards, for graphic cards, when it's just recovered to, to early pandemic levels? Right, and you could argue it's the same. It was the same level as 2019. Right? How how are uh, how are um, consumers being uh, being made to pay extra when this is 2019 prices for producers from their end? Right? This is fucking bullshit. Everybody's price gouging. They're taking their piece and they're blaming inflation. It, it's fucking. It burns me. Look at this. Iron ore, lumber. This is these are like just raw materials, right? Especially building supplies. Housing is a huge market. Housing controls. A huge part commands a huge part of the economy, right? Well, yeah, we know lumber kind of went up, spiked over um, earlier in the year. Iron ore did about the same time, but now they both plummeted, right? Let's get this out of the way. I don't know how to get this thing out of the way. Here we go. So lumber prices is now back to levels of mid-2020, which is just higher than July 2018. So like, is there really a premium being paid for lumber? It's a very small premium, right? Same thing with iron ore. Iron ore is back to what? Q2 2019 levels, right? If raw material prices are maybe 10% premium, 15% premium, why is everything so freaking expensive? I had one distributor or uh, a manufacturer tell me that creatine prices are up 250%. There's no fucking way inflation causes a 250% increase. That's a bidding war. That's just whoever's whoever's being the supplier is just maybe they had they might might not have enough supply or they just they just want to charge a little bit extra and just call it inflation and who's going to argue with them right? I mean, if I'm a manufacturer, I don't really know this the the raw material business. If if the guy says it's up sixty percent, what am I to to say right? Oh, my employees they want more money. Oh, it costs me more to ship uh, things around the world. I'm sorry, and it ends up being about sixty percent increase. Who am I to argue right? It's just completely dishonest. Now the and danger of this, all this. Do you expect prices to return to normal, or do you think they'll continue to go up? 
perfect timing. I was just going to go into that. Um, so my guess is that the premium market, the market that pays a premium for goods, luxury goods, cars, jewelry, what have you, I don't think their prices will ever come down. Once those industries are sharp, once they know a person is willing to pay X dollars for something, it's very hard to convince them to lower that price, unfortunately. However, for the regular consumer, for the rest of us, I think prices are going to come back down. All the high volume, low margin people. See, see another, another part of this is how much they ordered during the, or just after the shutdown, right? Once we started opening up, um, a lot of the, the shelves were bare. A lot of the inventories were bare. A lot of the warehouses were bare, right? And the demand was obviously high. People had extra cash to spend. The retailers are going, holy shit, there may be, um, might be a spending spree, right? So the theory goes that they over-ordered supplies. They over-ordered inventory. And they're going to have an excess of inventory soon. And this is actually, I showed this number the other day to you guys, I think. I don't remember if, um, if I showed it on my Instagram. But um, um, Black Friday sales. Fine. Yeah, so Adobe does these these um, surveys every year. And for the first year ever since they've been doing surveys, for any holiday, sales decrease year over year. Black Friday spending falls to $8.9 Excuse me. And it was either matched or below 2020. So 2020 this year, we were all locked down and not spending money. This year's spending, we're not locked down. It was supposedly we have extra money. And the spending was even less. Think about that right? Less spending, more inventory necessarily means lower prices. So I think next year is going to be quite interesting in that some industries are going to have, um, have maintained high prices um, and luxury industries and other industries, the ones that matter, I think to us regular people where it's high volume, low margin, those industries are going to, I hope they get fucked right back because if you're price gouging right now to get your piece because, oh, poor you, you got, you know, the shutdown cost you some money. Well, it cost all of us. So fuck you if you want to raise prices just to get your piece back because next year you're going to have a lot of inventory. Nobody wants that shit. So I hope you put everything on sale and just survive. Fuckers. Like you can tell I'm pretty, pretty, pretty upset about this thing. Like, and you know what? The final, here's the, here's the nail in the coffin for me. Uh, Brian, uh, Robin Books is a guy I follow on Twitter. If you, if you're interested at all in economics, follow this guy. Excuse me. He's a, he used to be an FX uh, analyst for Goldman, and he's currently working for the IMF uh, as an as an economist. And he's got the he puts up these updates like once a month or so. And it's a weird chart to look, but but basically these all represent countries. So you got U.S., Brazil, Korea, Taiwan. You know the semi manufacturers and whatnot. So what this line is, this line indicates um, break even price or or the how do I put this? The, the, the correct amount of output prices based on input prices. So what output and input means is that input prices is the prices that a manufacturer pays for their raw goods. Output price is the price they charge for those goods that they've, they manufactured with those raw goods. This red line represents where fair value is. So a lot of these countries, Japan, Brazil, they're like, just skidding just above this number, that's fine. You want to make a little bit extra, that's cool. But look at what the U.S. is. Look at what the U.S. is. They are charging significantly more in terms of how much they paid for the raw goods versus how much they're charging for the finished product of those raw goods. 
right? And this was like what March. So now we're in September. Oh, look at look at how many of these fuck face countries, Great Britain, everybody, it's Italy, everybody's jumping, fucking Germany, everybody's even Canada. Look at this. Everybody's jumping in on the party, charging significantly more than what it costs them to produce the goods. There is nobody charging, <laughs> there's nobody charging at or below value. Except for these poor fucks, you know, Philippines, like India, like this is unfortunate, China, Japan, Korea, like the Asian countries seems to be getting fucked. But look at this, the, all the Western countries who keep pushing this bullshit COVID narrative, who won't let this fucking thing die, who, who keeps, who, who keeps uh, calling for inflation, 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 who keeps blaming the central banks. Look at the fucking manufacturers in these countries charging significantly more than what it costs them in terms of raw goods. It's such a funny thing when a lie just kind of aligns with a certain industry or a certain group of people and you just see them just lose their humanity. This fucking burns me, man. How, how can anybody use this information to take it and put it into the stock market? Aha! Uh -huh. I would avoid any, com any commerce, any, any retailers right now. Oh, shit. I should have saved it. There was... um. A report from one of the big uh, big box retailers, I think just two weeks ago, saying that their inventories are a little bit higher than they expected to be. And this was before Black Friday. And if Black Friday sales ended up being less than expected, I'm going to guess Christmas, um, what's what's the uh, Boxing Day, those sales are going to be huge disappointments. And going into next year, it's going to be even worse. And and I think, I actually, I just, I just thought of this, but this whole narrative about inflation, I think it's spooked re um, consumers. Right to the point where it's had um, a negative effect on the people they're trying to take advantage. Right, if you're trying to scare people into saying, "Well, not trying to scare," they're trying to say like, "Our prices are higher because of inflation." Well, this is called the cobra effect. Right, you say one thing expecting for one result, and then there ends up being an unintended consequence. And the unintended consequence of saying there's inflation is, guess what? People don't want to spend money anymore. They're like, "Fuck, I want to save my money." Then shit's like shit's expensive, right? Oh, maybe I'll just I'll spend it on shit that matters. I won't spend it on shit that doesn't matter. Right. And so, like, I think especially the Q1, Q2 of next year, um, the big box retailers are going to suffer quite a bit, quite a bit. Because can you imagine their, their situation they're in now? It's like you now have workers demanding more money. Your rents are up. <laughs> you have extra inventory that you paid a premium for, and you're trying to sell it for a premium, but no one's buying. That should be very, very interesting. Yeah. That should be quite interesting. And these are the low-end people, the low-margin people. We're talking about the dollar shops, the Walmarts, maybe even Amazon's going to... Oh, that would be interesting. I, 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 I want to see the charts because I would love to see if the Amazon is going to take a bit of a nosedive for the first time ever. Uh, Q2, actually the first half of next year. 1H of next year. That would be very interesting. Stay away from retails. Um, actually, but I, what I would... Um, what I would keep an eye on is services because what I, what I did, a lot of the reading that I've done is, is showing that um, while goods has um, good sales has not picked up the demand for services is huge because one thing that you can't get during the pandemic, you can get goods, right? You can order online, What you can't get during the pandemic is services, right? Whether that's, you know, experience holiday type services or just a fucking haircut, you know? A lot of stuff that people haven't had for a while and they'd love to spend some money doing that. So I think those areas are about to blow up. Yeah. Let's take a swig.
Yeah, I think that's already happened because one of my friends, he's getting his house uh, renovated and he was telling me to gut his entire house. It's going to cost him 11 to 12 grand just to get everything taken down. Yeah, not even anything replaced, right? Just put down. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, construction is pretty interesting. There's a guy in my building. He's a foreman uh, for... Uh, sort of medium-sized construction company i was ran into, into into him in the elevator the other day and he's like saying um <laughs> he's like saying he was bidding for a job and um he didn't get it because based on material costs if he if he bid any lower he would have been losing money right and he said his competitor won but is probably going to end up losing money because from the date that they submitted the bids to the date that the price was agreed upon to the date that i talked to my my neighbor <laughs> material costs went up even higher <laughs> so the guy so whoever the competitor is they're gonna have to honor that contract and just suck it up and do do the job for a loss <laughs> and that can't be you know a, a terribly unique story you know what i mean so i think i think 2020 is going to be an economic storm but that doesn't necessarily imply like doom and gloom recession um, but it certainly won't be zoom zoom that I say on IG, like I certainly don't expect zoom zoom to happen. I think it's going to be chop, which means it's going to be actually, it's basically what we've experienced for the last, I'm going to say five, four to five weeks in the market is probably what we should expect for next year. A little bit more downside, but mostly sideways movement and chop. And for those people who wanted to trade chop is the worst thing in the world. Uh, it's the worst condition in the world to be in, uh, to the markets because if you are if you lack discipline if you don't have like kaylin like if you don't have a really strict set of rules and guidelines and strategies you use you cannot wing trading chop because you're going to make the wrong decision almost every time um as for investors put your money into the companies that you believe in three to five to ten years out and don't look at it and just leave it right you know, if maybe if you're you, if you want to you want to take advantage, put some money aside, buy some dips, cool. But don't try to don't try to react to the market is basically what I'm saying is because that's going to destroy you. That's actually going to that's going to destroy you. And the money's going to go to guys like me who know either not to play the chop or how to buy a dip. Right. Actually, let me just pull up my Instagram. Uh, that's better if I just say it, but what about for people who, who need money now? Like, for example, my friend who's getting his house gutted, he needs to sell off some of his uh, equities because he just needs the money to pay for the house and everything. But then the thing is, he has no choice but to end up selling soon. When would be a good time for him to uh, let it go? Is it now or is it later if someone was in that situation? Yeah, I wouldn't mind selling now, especially if the money's going to go, go to another hard asset like a home. I mean, the market's like, let me just like take a look. Let's S&P 500 is probably at or near all-time high. We are, oh, so this is the monthly, let's take a look daily. So we are literally a percent, 2% from the top, from the highest we've ever been. It's 4,600. 4,600 was like a ridiculous dream just years ago. Like this was the previous top. This is September of last year. We're still three full percentage points higher than where we end uh, September of last year. And people think like the stock market's crashing. Like, no, like now is a fantastic time to sell. 
I mean, if the market leaves you here, like, is it really a bad thing to sell near all time highs and then just discover later that it kept on going, especially when that money is going into a home, which is going to accrue you some value and you live it in every day. So you can definitely enjoy the difference. I mean, it's just, you know, there's a lot of things that people should consider, right? Not just um, opportunity cost. You know, it, you, people can lose themselves thinking about opportunity cost in um, in the stock market. There's always like, oh, there's a better play here or, or oh, I should have kept this or sold that or whatever. It's like you're going to drive yourself nuts worrying about opportunity cost in the market. What people should be viewing, how people or how I view the market is like I have a pool of money and it's and it's it's not my money, but I'm the portfolio manager of this money. And so it's my job to decide where best to allocate this money. Right, where the best returns would be over time and so like if you look at it that way don't look at it something as something that you can spend or you can get back and then you could then use for something like a home or, or just whatever vacations you just look at it literally in terms of numbers and how to allocate it and how do i make these numbers bigger right and so like you can divide things in uh, there should have been another episode i was going to talk about portfolio theory but i'll touch on it now like you should look at your entire portfolio in terms of risk. And so like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of times I get messages that they're like, oh, I'm in crypto. I'm in, you know, they have this altcoin, they have that altcoin, they have this altcoin, they have that altcoin. They're like, I'm diversified. They go, you're not diversified. You're basically, you basically have the same risk profile. They're altcoins, that's it, right? Saying that you have Bitcoin in altcoins doesn't make a difference, much difference either from a portfolio standpoint. You're basically still in crypto. That's a, That's one market. And when that one market crashes, I don't care what coin you have, you're fucked, right? Portfolio theory is that you divide it based on complete different markets. You have assets like a home, you have maybe collectibles, you have art, you have a car, you have stocks, you have bonds, you have gold, you have, there's so many different areas where you can spread the money around, right? And so you look at the list of things that you, where you can put the money around and you say, well, what do I want to own? And then you pick out maybe two or three or four things and you say, okay, I'm going to put my money into these things. And then how do you divide it, right? Well, the way I look at it is that I look at it in terms, again, in risk, right? Equities to me is less risky than crypto, right? So how I want to do it, do my portfolio is I want to put maybe the majority of my funds into equities and the the more high risk stuff, which is crypto, I want to put a less lesser amount of it into it, right? So here's a, here's a great argument for portfolio allocation for like, um, for like somebody like my mom, like I, 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 I kind of put her into crypto because by buying the Bitcoin ETF, but how I did it was it's, I think 5% of her portfolio, right? Um, but let me use a different number. Let's say your, your, your parents are risk averse, put 2% of their portfolio into crypto. What does that mean? Well, if you have a thousand dollar portfolio and you put 20 bucks into crypto, you lose that 20 bucks. It's not the end of the world, right? But you calculate the upside. Crypto has a tendency to move 10 X, right? All the time. And so if you have 2% of your, or 20 bucks of your portfolio into crypto and it does a 10 X, that's, that's $200. So your $20 investment just became 200, uh, $220 in a thousand dollar portfolio. That's a 20% gain off a 2% allocation, right? That's how you look at a portfolio, right? You look at stuff that has outsized, um, the potential for outsized gains and then you, and then you you balance that with stuff that's more safe, right? Like we should, I'm sorry, but we shit on Dogecoin, we shit on AMC all the time because people go all in with it, right? If you say if somebody came to me and says, "Yeah, I put uh, I put a five percent allocation of my portfolio into AMC," I'm like, 
fucking smart, right? AMC does a fifty percent, does a hundred percent move. You just, you just, you just, you just, you just did quite good return on your portfolio off a of very low risk allocation, right? If if AMC went to zero, and no company goes to zero, by the way, but if AMC did go to zero, what do you lose? Five percent of your portfolio? You can make that back up, right? Just just putting your your money in the market in the S and P five hundred usually yields you anywhere between four to seven percent. And so, like, if you put 5% of your portfolio into something that's, like, high risk, you're going to gain that back on balance a following year. So it's really not to that risky, right? And so that's why I say look at your portfolio in terms of risk, right? My personally, like, and so, like, between, once you divide it between, like, let's say crypto and, like, if you're my parents' age, you probably have bonds, equities, and then crypto, maybe, right? So let's say you look at your, your equities pile then. You then divide that by risk, right? You say, what are my what are my staples? Right. So I so I've been managing my mom's portfolio for a year now, and she's up 43% for the year. And this is a portfolio that has done less than that in 10 years. Right. So how did I do that? Well, we put first thing I took it over and I sold her freaking uh farmer stocks. High risk, really low return. She's got a big chunk of money there. She has the chunk of money there because she works in farmers, so and she's like, that's all I know. I sold that money right away. I put it into Tesla and she's always opposed to Tesla, not because of the company, but because of how expensive the stock is. Well, this was back when Tesla was about this in the $600 range. It wasn't expensive, relatively speaking. So I put the money in there. So her core holdings were Tesla and Apple. And the reason that those are her core holdings is because these are companies I believe in three, five, 10 years out are going to be very, very strong. Right, especially Tesla. It's a it's a dominant player in a nascent industry, which means the the room for growth is astronomical, right? And so then I decided to put her in some more high risk stocks, right? So I put her in Xpeng, right? Still a nascent industry, which I love, but it's a little bit more high risk because they're younger, they're more less quality, um, less funding. But if you look at Xpeng's chart, this thing can run, right? So I put I think I put her in about four percent into that stock. And then, of course, I bought her some uh, Bitcoin ETFs, right? So within the within just the pool of equities, you can divide that by risk as well. And so, yeah, so that's portfolio theory. And so, like, you know, taking it back to my outlook for inflation in the economy, it's like my view is this. Knowing what I know, I'm still not going to change my portfolio design at all. I still have my Teslas. I still have, like, so inflation is supposed to be bad for growth stocks, right? Uh, when you make money hard to borrow, when 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 interest rates are high, growth stock tends to suffer because they basically rely on this continued infusion of money to keep them going because they're not really profitable. Well, I'm sorry, but Tesla's very profitable right now and they're growing. And again, nascent industry, so that's going to keep growing, right? And so, like, I have no fear that under any condition, Tesla's going to survive. And if there is condition in which they don't survive, everybody else is fucked even more. So that's my thesis for that. So my, my, the bulk of my portfolio is still in Tesla. And then I still have my Bitcoin ETS because I don't believe this run is over. I still have my Xpeng. I still have my Vimeo. I have like a handful. I have NVIDIA, right? And so when I look at that portfolio and I look at inflation, I'm like, I don't see inflation affecting NVIDIA too much, right? I don't see inflation affecting Xpeng too much. They sell almost exclusively in China. What, what's my risk? And actually, to be honest, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin ETFs might do well under an inflation um, economy. So, I mean, you can totally design a portfolio. 
if you're clever, you can totally design a portfolio that is both safe and somewhat of an inflation hedge without having to dip your toes into the traditional shit like bonds, because bonds are supposed to be great for inflation, which I completely disagree with. So actually, let me touch on that really quick. So uh, a friend of mine messaged me recently, right? He used to manage a fund on, on Wall Street. So he's like, he's like my guy for, um, for getting to know how Wall Street thinks. So we, we got into, we got to talking and he gave me some insight. He's like, portfolio managers on Wall Street um, have a mandate to perform, meaning they're judged, you know, quarter to quarter, year over year, whether or not the stock market is healthy, they have to allocate that money to something. And so like they have to buy bonds. If there's nothing else that could yield a better return that they have to buy bonds, right? They have to be in the market because he, what he told me was interesting. He said, um, if the entire market is underperforming, them underperforming doesn't make them look bad. It, they kind of get a pass on that. What will make you look bad is if the market is performing well and you're not in the market. And so your competitor is giving their customers returns and you're not. And so that, that creates an interesting dynamic where there's a lot of money in the market that are that's literally just being forced to be in the market. Um, that I find interesting. And I think that that's going to be an interesting thing next year because knowing that money is going to be there, being have to be allocated to something and knowing what I know about how bullshit that inflation everything is, I think um, the companies that will perform, outperform, surprisingly outperform, like the growth stocks, because they're expected to underperform in an inflationary environment. I think the people selling them off right now, which we're seeing like today, this week, last week, um, that money is going to go back into these guys. Because can you imagine like growth stocks, technology stocks that have been sold off pretty hard? Can you imagine if they survive this thing and they keep doing well, better than bonds, better than uh, what's it called? The, the, um, the, um, the um the value stocks if your portfolio manager and your more high risk competitors got their hands on tesla got their hands on nvidia you know facebook they're performing they're overperforming they're destroying your your returns you're going to have to adjust pretty quickly and that adjustment could cause quite a few quite cause quite a few runs on stocks on growth stocks tech stocks so I mean, I could go on this rant for, for a long time about how portfolio managers think. I think all of them are, um, the young ones are, are cool, but the older ones, the ones that made money uh, in the 2001 crash, they all hate technology. And the ones who made a lot of money then like to bet on technology failing. And it's a, it's a human error thing where it's like, you know, you'd like to return to the same pool or same um, pond that, 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 um, that gave you water to begin with, right? You like to return there. They think, well, the same thing's going to happen this time. And the problem is it's not. And so they're going to, it's, they're going to, they're going to be taught a very important lesson. Actually, I'll say this real quick, right? Cause we, cause I'll reference our, our podcast because if people want to listen to the podcast, go backwards and listen to it a whole year or have it listened to the whole year. Can you name one time we made a weird call or or a call that wasn't correct? I said I said the fucking uh, Evergrande thing was bullshit. Going backwards, I said the Evergrande thing was bullshit. I called the bond market thing being bullshit. Um, oil, lumber, these were all bullshit. Um, semiconductors, bullshit. Like if you if you observe the pattern, it's like every time they come out with a scare in financial news, the market reacts because they know it's mostly retail that's in charge. 
right? The market reacts and within two to three weeks, the market is back up. Actually, even higher than before, right? And then within two, three weeks, maybe a one month news cycle, there's a new scare, whether it's Omicron or whatever, right? But you can almost time it. Every time the news gets a little bit quiet, they come out with a new scare that ends up being bullshit. Market sells off. Somebody buys a dip. Somebody buys the dip. And the market recovers. If you don't know you're getting played, then you're losing money. If basically, like if you're not aware that you're being played, you're you're being played. So um, yeah, take everything you read with a grain of salt. And this is a great educational time because um, if you can start seeing through the bullshit, if you can start acquiring resources like I have, like Robin Brooks on, on Twitter and get, just get a bunch of good, solid resources um, to inform your decisions, you're going to come out very, very strong, either an investor or a trader. And I think um, going forward, I mean, hopefully you're young, but going forward, you know, 5, 10, 20 years from now, this is going to be a life skill that could really help you because it's really helped me. Um, but I want to really quickly say that when I say a source, it doesn't mean CNBC. When I say source, it's not Bloomberg. Those aren't sources. Sources for me are individuals like Robin Brooks who have a track record, who have some way, some shape or some form of getting information that I don't have. And what I do is I find people like him, but generally counter to his position or counter to his opinion. And then I follow them. And then when you've got a, a group of uh, people like that or sources like that who may not agree with each other, but have real um, logical opinions and formed on real data, what you end up having is a very clear picture. What you end up having is a perspective that has very few flaws. And then you use that to inform your decision making. You're going to find yourself very fortunate to be in that position like I have. All right. Sorry if I rant is a little bit long, guys, but, um, but thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking through it. And um, we hope to be back full force next week. All right. Take care.